Hey guys, this is Seth here, Phil's editor. Phil messed up the episode numbers, so here I am telling you that this is episode 16, not 15, although he'll introduce this episode as episode 15. Hope you enjoy. Episode 15 of the Tartar Project, Phil Toronto, back at it again. Another week, another episode. Today we have my friend Mike Mignano on, co-founder of Anchor, which may or may not be how you're even listening to this podcast. I personally could not get this out there without Anchor, so I truly appreciate the fact that he and his co-founder created such a phenomenal product and and really just kind of changed the game for podcasting. And it's really impressive how easy anchor makes it and cuts out a lot of the stress around the logistics of creating a show i really appreciate it the reason i wanted to have mike on and i was really excited to have him on especially because he was gracious enough to host me at spotify hq uh, down in financial district uh, in new york city is just the fact that anchor is this game-changing brand in the podcast game and He and his co-founder were working on audio ideas before audio was super cool and super hot and before a lot of people were even listening to podcasts. It was sparked by Serial, of course, and he admits it. And I mean, that's where my interest initially was sparked as well, as I think many of you can relate to. But I truly appreciated how honest and open he was about everything from start to finish, including part of the acquisition talk. Uh, Spotify did end up buying Anchor um, earlier in 2019, which was huge. Um, And I'm really glad to see that the fruits of their labor are paying off. And I think they're going to be a big part in the podcast movement going forward. So that's why Mike's on. I'm excited to share a conversation with you. Same old drill, though. Five stars on iTunes. If you can, follow me on Spotify. Please tell your friends about the Tartar Project. But most importantly, thank you so much for listening. Here's Mike. Mike. Bill, how you doing? I'm good. This, this, hello everybody with the Tartar Project. I'm out of my element right now. We're recording out of Spotify Studios slash Anchor Studios down in, uh, in, Fidei, Four World Trade. Yep. Four World Trade. I didn't know if we could be public with the address, but oh, okay. I think it's out set. there. I think it's out there. Okay. I think. I, I think. Yeah. Whatever. We'll I mean, the, the security around this building is like. Yeah. I mean, it's like a fortress. Next so, level. Yeah. So, Next level. Um, I think it's out there. The address. Yeah, I think so too. Public company. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Whatever. Exactly. It's totally fine. So today, today we have we have a guest. We have a friend for a long time who I've seen. Uh, wear many hats actually and the most recent one is founder and acquired founder at this point uh mike created something called anchor which without anchor the tartar project probably would not be possible because anchor makes creating my podcast and getting my podcast out to you with you listening to me right now way easier so thank you for that and can you just do me a favor and actually, in your words, tell the listeners what Anchor is, aside from just something that makes my life incredibly easy. Sure. So the way that I think about Anchor is, I think it's the easiest way to make a podcast. I think we are becoming, in my humble opinion, uh, the best way to make a podcast, because I think we're we're now getting to the point where we we solve so many problems for creators and not just new creators that I feel confident being like, if you're going to make a podcast, Regardless of your experience level, I recommend you do it on Anchor. Um, but um, yeah, I normally say it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Period. Sounds great. Yeah. The end. I like the that, end. That hard stop. <laughs> yeah. And did you get into the podcast world because you have such a podcastable voice, or does that just like an after product kind of thing? Uh, I actually think so. Thank you, first of all. Um, that um, That is a thing that has been said to me many times along the Anchor journey. And I do think it is a, um, a post, what, what did you call it? Um, an after? Post acquisition? No, 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 afterthought? no. No, so I, it, it happened, I think it happened after Anchor. Oh, got it. Str- yeah. str- like, this yeah. is kind of yeah. weird to admit, but. Um, you so, grew into yourself. 
No, listen, this is actually really funny. So if you think about the very first version of Anchor, which I know you remember, you were, you were a part of it, you were on it. Um, it was this, it, 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 the way I think of the first version of Anchor is we were, it was short form audio. It was effectively like a social audio app, yep. um, which was very, very instructive to us for how to simplify the experience of podcasting. I think we always had this mission of we want to democratize audio. We want to make it really, really easy for anyone to be able to do this stuff. And we all, we, we did have podcasts in mind at that point. We were actually inspired by um, struggling to make podcasts ourselves. But we thought we could simplify like the entire ecosystem quite naively, I should add, uh, just by making the whole thing a social sure, network. Yeah, because right? it's it's 2014 and everything should be a social network. So um, anyway, the point is we launched this this audio social network and it turns out it's like really, really, really engaging. Like it's impossible to put down um, if you're a part of that earlier early community. And so Nir and I, my co-founder and I, um, we were on anchor 1.0 constantly like i i want to say like 20 hours a day wow. for the first few months like just recording highly constant, engaged highly highly engaged like not only using the product but also like having to like be a part of the community and support people that are having issues and things like that and so i was talking and and playing back the audio constantly and i think um kind of subconsciously probably kind of optimized my voice over sure. time for that. Yeah. And then from there started recording podcasts and stuff. And like, I don't, I actually think I developed this voice in a way and you knew like what unintentionally through um, constantly having to listen back to my voice before blasting it off into the, the ether of the internet, which is essentially the worst thing in the world until you get comfortable yeah. with hearing your own voice. The first few Tartar projects editing and everything, I would just cringe because I'm like, it goes away. Yeah. Yeah. That definitely, definitely goes yeah. away. I don't love it to this day, but now I'm good. It's yeah, cool. Editing's it's, not so bad. I don't know. Everyone has that, right? Everyone's like, uh, I don't want to start a podcast because I don't like the sound of my own voice. But after you've put it out there a couple of times, you forget about that very quickly. Yeah. Just goes right away. Yeah. Goes right away. So we're actually, we're going to take multiple steps back. Okay. Where'd you grow up? Uh, I grew up on Long Island in a town called Miller Place uh, near, near a town that more people have heard of probably called Port Jefferson in Suffolk County. Or yeah. Jefferson is definitely yeah. more of a landmark. Yeah. But it is what it is. It is what it is. Yep. <laughs> Growing up, did you did you care about school? Did you have the option to not care about school? I so guess. I the, what is that? What do you mean by that? So were your parents super into how well you did in school? Oh, and got it. Um so my parents were teachers and um Same. definitely value oh really? Mm -hmm. Definitely valued education. Um and you know, so I, I cared about school, but I didn't like Super, super, super care about getting good grades, I would say. I think earlier in my life, I, I got good grades, but I, I think I remember specifically, you know, somewhere around high school, I realized that to get good grades, you you had to try. You know what I mean? Um, and I think that's when I, I, I didn't have bad grades. I had fine grades, yeah. but um, like. I think that's when they started to not be straight A's and like I had to work a little harder to ensure that I was able to go to like a decent college, you know, right. that sort of thing. And so um, definitely had to care about school. But, um, you know, I, I was not I was not like a perfect student. I actually cared a lot more about the some of the like the extracurricular extracurricular things that I did. Like so I played some sports. Um, I did a ton of music. Um, you know, both like officially and sort of like formally through the school. Like I did, you know, every type of like band you could be a part of in school. Like what I was, was your instrument drums. So I, I was a drummer. Um, you know, I was in like the regular band and then I was in like the jazz band and like, I, so I also sang. And so I was also in like the, um, like vocal jazz. Like I nice. did, I did all everything music that I could do. How's your acapella? And then, um, acapella. I was ever in an acapella group. Uh, you know who was in an acapella group is my co-founder near in college. He was, at a, yeah, he was like in a, like a real legit acapella thing. Um, you should ask him about it sometime. But um, so, so I cared a lot about the extracurriculars, sports, music. Um, I even did my senior year. I did. I did theater. Wow. Um, and really dabbled. I, I dabbled. I'm a dabbler. I like that. I, I, I'm a dabbler for sure. Um, and then, yeah. And then I decided, so I did a lot of, um, 
you know, not officially through school because my school didn't really offer any like computer science or programming based stuff. I did. I taught myself programming on the side. And when it came time to go away to college, you know, it was like the path of, hey, do I try to major in music somewhere and kind of like dedicate my life to the drums um, or do I take the safe path and, you know, seems like the internet's going to be a big deal. Maybe I should be around. Yeah, maybe I should be a computer science major. And so, um, I, I took the safe path, which kind of reluctantly, I actually was not super interested in, in pursuing that. Um, and although it was fun teaching myself programming it, and I loved computers, the thought of programming as like a full-time job kind of freaked me out, but I did it anyway. I was like, this is the safe, responsible thing to do. Yeah, this is, this is um, what Mike should be doing. Yeah, exactly. So that's my, that's my school story. I respect yeah. that. Yeah. Thanks. While, while you were in school and doing all your extracurriculars, <laughs> mm-hmm. I struggle with the word too. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> did you, did you have jobs? Were you entrepreneurial? Did you have kind of side hustly things where you resold stuff or what was yeah, that like? Good question. So, um, I, well, a couple of things. So number one, I did so I, I built some computer programs like for people more as like side projects and fun, not, not even really for money, just like, again, dabbling in sort of hobbies, um, all in visual basic, but for jobs, um, I did, I had a couple of jobs. Um, I worked for the, I lived down the street from an ice cream parlor. That was probably my first job. I hated it. It yeah. was, it was not, I was too young to like be one of the servers. And so I was just like cleaning up stuff in the back all day. And it was, it was, it was sticky. You got to really yeah. put some elbow grease into it. Yeah. I but, worked at Dairy Queen for oh, three really? years. Yeah. Yeah. But the job that I did love most, um, is actually, I was a pizza delivery driver. Ooh. Um, and I love that job. Even to this day, I think back in it, I'm like, that was an awesome job because I got to, and this was obviously once I got my license, um, I was able to drive around all night, like in my car, which I loved. I loved my car, uh, listen to my music, Yep. listen to, you know, uh, sports Mets talk radio, like WFAN. I'm a huge Mets fan. Um, I just got to like be in my, you know, my, my little element. And pop out every once in a while, yeah, delivery every, delicious yeah, exactly. pizza. And, and like what people, what people may not realize, but when you're, a, when you're a high school student, like a delivery driver gig is actually really well paying because the tips are great. Right. The tips are great. And if you like, there's a way you can sort of optimize uh, driving, like, you know, which houses to hit and which order and like w- which houses to prioritize yeah. and things like that. Yeah. You, you can learn. actually make a lot of money like for a high schooler. So I, 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 it was a good job. I love that job. It's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> you get to college. Yeah. And get through school. Anything crazy happened while you were, you were in school? So I, I, I very quickly, I wouldn't say this is crazy, but I sort of quickly in college and then kind of did nothing about it for a while, realized that I was like missing the music stuff. Um, that was like a clear, obvious, um, gap in my life. Um, once I went to college, I was like, I loved college. I made a lot of friends, you know, I did once again, I did like pretty good in school. I wasn't straight A's. Um, you know, I learned a ton, but I was sort of missing that passion. Um, that was a, that was sort of a a revelation for me in college, but did anything crazy happen? It's a tough question. Yeah. I don't, I don't think so. Um, for better or for worse, run, I think that's that's good. Yeah, run of the mill college education. Um, you know, where'd the, you go? Uh, University of Delaware. Cool. Yeah, Very and cool. then uh, and then I graduated. Yeah. And then where'd you go after you graduated? Yeah. What was the first job? So, I, so it's funny. I mean, you you graduate with a CS degree, and you know this is this is a bunch of years ago, and I actually, you know, I'm not sure. I have to imagine now you graduate with a CS degree and it's probably like, which of the massive tech companies do I want to go work for and make a ton of money? Right. Probably after um, a really nice paying internship. Potentially. Yeah. It wasn't really like that back then. Like back then it was like, okay, which maybe like consulting firm do you want to go work for? Right. So I worked for, I, I moved up to, I, I moved to Manhattan. I got an apartment in Manhattan and I was working for a tiny consulting firm and then my my wife, who was my girlfriend at the time, was actually still down in Delaware, and I didn't like my job, and um, we didn't want to do the long long distance relationship thing, and I I wasn't loving my apartment. There was like this this um, triangulation of like 
things I wasn't loving about my, yeah. my situation at the this time. And I was like fitting. Yeah. I was, I was like, I'm going to go back to Delaware for a minute. I went back down to Wilmington, Delaware, and I worked for Accenture. Cool. Uh, massive, massive consulting firm. I think kind of the, the biggest that you could get. I think to. it's like hundreds of thousands of employees. Insane. Which is like a small country. Definitely. Um, and, um, you know, n- nothing against Accenture, but I hated that job. I, I hated it. I was programming in like a proprietary language um, where to this day I still can't tell you what I was building. <laughs> um, uh, not, again, Cubicle? oh yeah. Like, and, oh, and here's the thing about, about the Accenture office, um, in Wilmington at the time, um, it was in a, an old department store building that they converted to like an office for Accenture. So imagine being in like a gigantic department store, clearing out all the racks, everything being wide open and then just dropping in like a gazillion cube cubes, oh. cubicles. Nope. No, thanks. Um, I I actually really liked the people and I liked the company. Like, I think, I think it's actually a really solid company. I just like for where I was at in my life and the work that I was doing, it just was not for me. Um, and I did not like it. And so when my girlfriend graduated from college and we decided we wanted to move back up to the New York city area, um, I said, you know what? I have to work in music. Like I, I, I made this mistake, not that it was a mistake, but I, you know, I had this, this reluctance about being a CS major and not pursuing music. Um, you know, I'm not going to make that mistake again where I'm not happy in my career. I need to work in music. And I decided I'm going to work at a record label just cause like, that seems like a place where yeah, somebody could get a like job right fit. Yeah. And I was like, I don't care what I'm going to do. I'll do, I'll do anything. And so, um, I treated it like a numbers game and I applied to every single like somewhat entry level job at a record label I could find. Like it didn't even matter if I was qualified, I was applying. Like yeah. I was just doing everything. I was filling out a gazillion applications. Let me in the door. Yeah. And um I did end up I I got a job um for the one that I was most qualified for, which was a freelance web developer at Atlantic Records. There you go. So building websites for artists. Um that's that's that was my my entry into the music industry. What about what year was that that you you joined Atlantic? Uh 2007. Amazing. Yeah. And is that where you first crossed crossed paths with uh one of two zany gentlemen in the music business at the time that went on to found <laughs> a pretty delicious website called The Infatuation? Yes. Yeah, so we all work together. Yep. So um and we're we're referencing Stang and Steinthal of what is now known as The Infatuation, formerly <laughs> known as one of the toughest to spell <laughs> domains of all time, Immaculate Infatuation. Yes, Immaculate uh, Infatuation. Yeah, that's where I met them. That's amazing. Stang worked down the hall for me. Um we worked, you know, fairly closely together and then Andrew um, he, so we, Stang and I were at Atlantic and then Andrew was at Warner brothers, which was a couple floors down from us. So sort of worked together, but yeah. we were all in the same building. Um, and yeah, I mean, that's when, uh, you know, I remember when, you know, when they were just getting it started and, um, you know, informally trying to get involved in some way. And I remember when they decided they needed to build their first iOS app, which was like early days iphone super early. they're like hey mike can you help us build an iphone app and i was like i've never done it before but i'm totally down to try and it worked <laughs> i used it i it, they introduced you as their lead developer and i thought you were a true part of the team <laughs> and then i found out you had other gigs so yeah. that, was, that was interesting it wasn't just me i you know so um it was me and another, actually another guy that was working at Atlantic at the time i i had never designed an app before and i was like i'll design this thing and uh, my friend Sean was like, "Yeah, I guess I'll try coding this thing." We had never done it before, and we and we and we tried it, and uh, and it it worked. Yeah. We actually used like a I don't know if you remember back in the day, there used to be a lot of these third party platforms that would like convert other types of code yes. to Objective C. Yes, I think we used this thing called Accelerator or something. Yeah, it worked perfectly fine. It was a pain in the ass to build, but um, but yeah, I mean, it it totally worked. I don't know if those things still exist. I I think most of them just have phased out or right. they i can't even pretend Swift like i know so much easier now like I, I wonder if i wonder if the language just got way simpler and, probably yeah, i don't know they put a lot of work in that yeah um anyway yeah that's the story of the infatuation app. I, mean, <laughs> I had to bring it up <laughs> yeah no, I, was, sure. I was playing on it yeah so you're at you're at atlantic 2007 and beyond mm-hmm. uh, 
how did you grow within that company and, the, and the, where did that take you in your career? Did that eventually lead to aviary or? Yeah. So, um, so when I started there, I was just building websites. I was, you know, basically like the label would sign an artist and it would be like, okay, this artist needs a website. Go. Um, yeah, we had like a PM on the team and the PM would get with the artist and management and like figure out what's important to the artist. And then the label was also, um, if you remember record labels in sort of, you know, 2007 to 2012, roughly, I would say, you know, they were all transitioning from this model where the album sales were driving all of the hundred percent of the revenue to needing to find other revenue streams. Right. And all these artists were getting signed to 360 deals. Yep. I don't know. I don't know if the, have you heard of this? I have heard of them. Okay. I, I hear a lot of negativity around them okay. these days. Okay. Um, so one of the functions of the department I was in, which was like the digital department was not just to build these websites, but let's, let's try to drive D to C sales of stuff as well, whether it's, you know, direct album sales or like, you know, merch or tickets or whatever. So these artist websites would also effectively be like these D to C stores. Um, so we would get with the artists and we would figure out what we want to build. And then I would just go build it. And originally it was, um, it was pretty like manual. There was like no framework. There was no platform. Like the early days we were building these things completely by hand from like nothing. And then over time Atlantic and Warner music group, I think adopted, you know, these different frameworks. Like we, I think we had some partnership with Cisco and then we did, um, Droop, we had some Drupal platform. Whoa. Yeah, there, yeah, this is a while ago. Yeah, no, I know. Um, anyway, so yeah, so that's how I got my start there. Over time, um, I ended up, I ended up transitioning to more of a product development role and helping the label explore like new opportunities for artists outside of just websites, right? Whether it be apps or um, we we experimented a, a bit with eBooks for a moment. Um, I got involved with a lot of like digital marketing projects. Um, I got to be the guy at the company that was kind of, that kind of had the freedom to think about stuff that nobody else in the company thought about. Like they kind of looked at me as like one of the few people in the company that understood the internet. Right. Right. Cause it's mostly like a traditional record label, or, you know, mostly thinking um, about the previous model that had worked um, prior to sort of the disruption that happened through privacy and stuff. So I got to, I got to think about other stuff and I got to meet with startups and sort of see what other things we could do um, outside of just, you know, record sales and things like that. So it was, it was really cool um, because I had a lot of freedom and they trusted me to try stuff. And uh, I got introduced like, kind of to the startup community through that job. That makes um, sense. As like the guy that startups would talk to, to find ways to work with labels, which still happens to this day, right? Totally. Like, I'm, I'm sure at all the labels now, there are constantly start different startups coming in and being like, Hey, we want to work with your artists. So that was kind of my introduction to startups. That's interesting. Yeah. And you, you kind of had free reign where you got essentially your first taste of entrepreneurship, because if you're running your own ship kind of thing, I can explore this avenue or this avenue, this kind of works. It's a bit of a stretch. Yeah. yeah. But I'm sure there were a few more constraints, yeah. uh, but <laughs> Especially it kind of opened industry. up your eyes. Yeah. It opened up your eyes a little bit. I think I remember, um, kind of looking back, I am so embarrassed that I, that I said this at one point, but I, I'm, I'm sure at some point during that job, I said to somebody like, yeah, it's kind of like a startup within, you know, within the label, which now having done a couple of startups, like startups are completely yeah, different it's not, like not. start being like starting a startup is hell like, yeah. like <laughs> there's nothing that can compare to just like being on your own and being like okay figure this shit out from nothing um yeah being at a company and saying you're a startup within the bigger company is just it's not true it's just impossible <laughs> um is what it is yeah, yeah yeah but but anyway i got very interested in startups um through my exposure to them there um, learned a ton at Atlantic, like Atlantic was like my education, really, really amazing team there. Great leadership. Um, really, really supportive of, of all these wacky things I was doing and, um, ultimately decided, you know what I want to, I want to go into startups. And so I was really passionate, 
um, for a lot of my life. I guess we didn't talk about this in the earlier part of part of my life segment, but um, just a window back into it. Yeah, I like it. So my mom uh, was and and it still is a photographer. Uh, she used to be a photographer professionally, and so photography was also a thing that I had always been interested in. And um, when mobile photography started taking off, like early days Instagram, I got really really into it, really excited by it. And I saw this opportunity pop up at a company called Aviary here in New York. And uh, it was well-timed with my wanting to jump into startups. And I said, you know what, I'm going to go for this. So I, um, I left Atlantic and, um, and joined my first official startup um, in 2012. Amazing. Yeah. And what were you doing at Aviary at the time? Yeah. So the role was, um, the one I, the one I joined, I started with, it only lasted a little bit was head of content. So basically we had this platform that was growing very, very quickly. Um, it was a, it was a photo editing SDK where basically we powered photo editing in a bunch of other apps. And then we also had our own app, um, in the app store and the Google play store, just a, like a basic photo editing app that just also took off organically and became really, really big. And so my job was to figure out how we could turn uh, both the platform and the app um, into a business by selling effectively um, in-app content, right? So like um, stickers and, you know, filters and basically trying to trying to develop that like shop model inside of the platform. Um, I did that only as my focus only very briefly because um, shortly after joining um, the company sort of identified a need to uh, establish like a head of product. And um, I took on that role as well, like a couple months in. So uh, basically ran ran product there um, shortly after I joined until um, until I left post acquisition by Adobe. And then did you stay at Adobe for a while? I stayed there. So we got acquired um, a little over Two years of me being there, I would say, and um, and I stayed at Adobe for I think about eight months or a year or something after acquisition. Hanging out. What'd you do once you left Adobe? Well, I left to, to focus on Anchor. Interesting. <laughs> funny. Funny how that works. Uh, yeah. No. I. So. How did you meet Near? So Near was also at Aviary. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Near actually joined Aviary right about the same exact time as I did. So um, he was running server engineering. And we definitely worked together, but not super closely. I would say most of our, I would say our closest work together at Aviary was probably on like hackathon projects. Um, Which is interesting because you kind of see how each other works, the yin and yang aspect of it. And he covers some aspects that you don't. Exactly. That's, that's kind of exactly how it happened, right? Like there were a couple hackathon projects where. Um, it was just like, all right, pair up with one or two people and, and we would pair up and it was just like, okay, race to build this thing through the night, um, force yourself into situations you normally wouldn't be forced into like, okay, you have to literally design an entire product, um, before 6am or whatever. And I have never designed a product before really. I mean, a little bit for the infatuation thing, but like that was years earlier, not like really. Um, and so, yeah, you're right. It actually is probably a decent litmus test for can you start a startup together yeah definitely (laughs) um so we did that a couple of times and then post acquisition um like you know like probably many many people that listen to podcasts now we got into podcasts because of serial like we heard serial it blew our minds each individually we discovered podcasts we started diving deep you know i was listening to uh, you know i loved the grantland podcasts um, obviously startup from Gimlet. We actually mm-hmm. listened to like, as we were starting anchor, it was like kind of cool. Oh, kind of like, therapeutic too. A little yeah, bit. definitely. <laughs> um, and we tried to start podcasts of our own and found the process to be extremely difficult. And that question, that, that challenge, that problem of like, man, this is really hard, uh, led to many other questions about podcasts. And I think, um, after asking a lot of these questions, uh, among the two of us, we said, maybe we can simplify like this entire thing. Like we had just worked for a couple of years on a product meant to simplify a creative experience for photographers and people taking photos on their phones. Um, I think we saw a lot of similarities and parallels and thinking, well, I wonder if we could simplify a creator workflow for audio and voice. Um, And then, you know, back to my whole thing from earlier about like we made it a social network. I think we started to think about what can we do on the consumption side as well? Maybe there are aspects we can simplify on the consumption side. Um, things to this day that I still 
um, think could be improved about about podcasts. We were thinking about back then, like, how do you improve the discover discoverability? How do you make it more shareable? How do you you know, how do you get more people involved? So it's yeah. not just the host. Right. Um, I think somewhat naively, we try to tackle probably all of those things way too early and sort of all at the same time. And that and that was Anchor 1.0. Um, but I think the intent there was always like podcasts are awesome. There's so much potential. How do we just make it easy? Definitely. Yeah. And from that initial napkin outlining of, of what are we going to do and everything, when did you decide that this is going to be what I do and we're going to raise money and we're going to we're going to go for it? So. It's funny. I So the way the, the way that this comes together and, I, and I've and I've and I've told this this story to a couple of people is basically for us, it was you start working on this in your free time. Right. And your free time when you first start working on it, like just start working on it is like, I think actually the the very first thing we did was over like a holiday break. You know, it was like, hey, we're going to have a couple of days. Like, let's tinker. Yeah. Um, Hackathon time. Yeah. And I remember like sitting. I remember this like vividly sitting on the floor of my parents home out of Long Island. And like I got the first use test flight or what, whatever it yeah, was I don't, it may hockey, have been yeah um, hockey or something I think it was hockey actually. and it was literally just like it was just this um this really really ugly interface where we could send voice memos back and forth to each. it was just like a red box and you were just like tap the box and it would like send a voice memo and um i remember getting really excited and be like oh my god we like built a thing that yeah. like does something. This is ours. Yeah. And then so what happens is you start dedicating, for us at least, you start dedicating your some of some portion of your free time, right? So some portion of the weekend or some portion of like the night after work, right? And what happened over the course of I would say like six months or so is you you slowly put more time into that bucket, right? Like before you know it, you're doing this every night after work, right? Yep. And then before you know Maybe it, you're I can doing sneak it out a little early at night. And <laughs> no, 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 we yeah. actually we, we we actually were very very responsible about dividing like work time versus anchor time, right? Like we were. I really we respect were, that. <laughs> thank you. I really do. <laughs> we uh, we we said from the beginning like this only works if we can continue to fulfill like the other aspects of our lives that are important, like our jobs, our families, like. Friends, to some extent, like I definitely will admit, you know, everyone says you really, really need to maintain, you know, obviously time with your family and your friends. I will admit firsthand, like it's it's a hard thing to have a social life when you're starting uh, a company. It, you you recognize that you need to do it. Yeah. But it's really hard to maintain that balance. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, but we st- it started eating into other times. Right. So like, OK, you start doing um, every night after work. Right. Then before you know it, you're doing like all weekend then before you know it you're doing mornings before work then before you know it you're not sleeping like your your nights after work are going till two three Mm -hmm. in the morning and you're waking up at six to work for two hours before you go to work and i think what 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 ends up happening or ended up happening at least for us is it gets to a point where you have to make a choice it's like a pretty black and white choice which is to keep this thing going i need to invest more time for me to invest more time it's got to come from somewhere. And the only way it's coming from the, the, the day hours is if I quit my job. Right. Um, and that's when you have to make the decision, at least for us, at least that makes sense. That's how, that's how it all happened. It was like chip away as many hours as possible until you're like, Oh shit. Yeah. If I want to keep doing this, I literally have to quit my job. Yeah. This is all I can do. Yeah. That's amazing. So that's when, that's when you start talking about fundraising. That's talking about how am I going to live? How Had am you I ever gonna... raised money before? No. Right. No, had never raised money. Um, and fortunately, you know, had friends and mentors that um, had a ton of advice for me that was super valuable. And honestly, Anchor probably could not have existed without that advice. But um, the thing that everyone told me, which I totally agree with now and I recognize to be true, is that you cannot raise money while you're working another full time job. It is impossible because raising money is a full time job. Yeah. When it's your you third are, full-time job yeah, if you're when, trying. <laughs> totally. When you are in fundraising mode, like that is all you're doing. Um, fortunately, we kind of got what what to me felt like a pretty lucky break. And that was um, Maya Prohovnik, who is Anchor's head of product. Uh, at the time, and, and by the way, I should mention that we worked with Maya for a long time at Aviary. 
Um, at the time uh, of, 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 of this moment, she was at Betaworks. And she said to me, she's like, hey, um, you know, we do this, like this demo night thing at Betaworks. And, um, you know, peeps, entrepreneurs, like founders come in and they just like show stuff they're working on and that's it. Like you get, maybe you'll get some beta users or whatever. So we went in and we, and we demoed. And at the end of the demo, John Borthwick, the CEO of Betaworks came up to me and he's like, like, all I'm thinking about is audio. Like we need to talk. And, uh, we had a conversation with him and Matt Hartman, who's a, who's a partner at Betaworks Ventures and a good friend of mine. And, um, not at the time. I didn't know at the time he's a, he's, he's become a very good friend of mine. Um, and they were like, look, like we all were thinking about his audio and this is like one of the most interesting things we've seen. Like, how do we get involved? So what we ended up doing was we ended up raising what I guess people now call like a pre-seed, right? It's a, it's a, there's it like a, there's, there's a term for this shifting. now. It's yeah. called a pre-seed. Um, I don't know what's what we raised a very, very, very tiny, small amount of money. So we didn't go broke. Basically, Nir and I, neither of us were in a position financially to be able like to like burn through our life savings or whatever. And so we we ha- we could not do this without having some amount of money. And so we raised this pre-seed without ever having to go out and like do a round of funding, which, as I said, like typically takes, you know, like a full time yeah. job worth of effort. Um, and that gave us like three months to kind of get our shit together, get the product in a state that we felt comfortable fundraising and then go out and raise like a real round of funding. And so that's what we did. We, um, we quit our jobs. We took in this tiny little bit of money and we worked for like three months straight at the Betaworks office to like, to like prep ourselves to go raise a round yeah, of funding. To get ready. Yeah. And that's, and that's, that's how that happened. What was the, what was the first week of fundraising? Like, was it absolute hell? Oh man. So there's a good story here. Um, actually, oh, I'm like, it's a, it's a, it probably sounds like a good story, but like, as I, as I'm thinking, I'm like, oh my God, that was awful. Um, <laughs> so here's the other thing that happened when we first started the company. I had hip surgery. Um, I was running too much. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had a tear, a labral tear in my hip that had to be repaired. I tried to treat it with physical therapy for a long time. And basically, of course, all of these things are happening at once. And like, as I'm transitioning out of my job and into anchor, I have to get hip surgery. And I had never had surgery before and completely underestimated what it meant to recover from surgery. It's um, a, also a major surgery. It seems like, yeah, well, <laughs> important. I thought it wasn't going to be that major. Sure. It was like, not, it was like uh, arthroscopic. So like I was told it wouldn't be super invasive and like, oh, you'll only be on crutches for a couple of weeks. I ended up getting injured in recovery. Oh, and so I had to be on crutches for roughly, I, I ended up being on crutches for like four months. Wow. Um, so to answer your question, first week of fundraising, I was on crutches fundraising. So, you know, I did the whole thing where I had to, I had to be wheelchair through the airport. Um, I literally showed up to all the pitch meetings, by the way, I've never done this before, like terrified, don't know anything about fundraising. And I'm walking into all these meetings on crutches and like clearly in pain. Um, it was uncomfortable. And, um, and yeah, I don't know that first week was intense. I had never experienced anything like that. I was told. Um, so the advice I got about fundraising, which I feel is really good advice, um, especially if you're in New York and you're traveling west for fundraising, is jam pack that week or two weeks or whatever you're doing with as many meetings as possible. Just like all out blitz. And even um, some you don't even want practice yeah yeah practice and within reason yeah for sure and um and 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 we did that and um and it was the most exhausting week of my life easily between between like the sheer volume of meetings and times that i had to pitch anchor to people i had never met before and the crutches thing i'm on crutches i'm exhausted i'm in pain yeah um it was it was really really difficult (laughs) yeah that, that sounds extra challenging um but we got a term sheet first week, um, which I never thought was possible. Like, there's no way I thought that was going to happen. And it did. And, um, and it, it definitely made the rest of the process much easier. Um, but it was intense and yeah, I'll, I'll never, I'll never forget it. Did you take that first term sheet? Um, we did. It ended up sort of, there ended up being like this, um, sort of like co-lead situation between, um, that that firm that offered that first term sheet and another firm that sort of wanted to lead there there was like good alignment in their interests and we we ended up doing this like co-leading 
thing. Um, diplomatic. It just made sense. We, like uh, yeah, we've, we were really fortunate with our investors. Like I, we had um, all of our investors were amazing. Like I, I, I don't have a single negative thing to say about any of our investors, which I've heard is like not always the case. I've heard it's that not like, always the case. Yeah. yeah. Like, like they were amazing. All of them um, from our earliest investors to, you know, the, the ones we worked with more later stage, like the people who were on our board. Um, it, it, it was just, it was great. Um, yeah. So you raised your first round of funding, yep. proper round of funding after yep. the, the pre-seed, whatever we will call it. Um, how, how different had the product become? Like what, what product were you out there pitching for that original seed round? And like, how did it evolve over the course of that financing and that burn, I guess? Yeah. So we raised it in the fall. Um, and that product was effectively anchor 1.0. It had no content in it because we didn't have like a big community and then so what we did between fundraising and launch, which was in the following February, was try to fill the product with content. We hired a community manager that, you know, basically that person's job was to try and go wrangle content creators and get them in the product. Um, that proved really, really difficult to do with a closed sort of beta. Um, and and we ended up launching like a pretty similar product to what we pitched to investors a few months earlier in, in February of this was 2016 yeah wow yeah you've been in the audio game for a while before it was cool before it was cool <laughs> i will say that um i will remember and here and i talk about it a lot that on on some of those first fundraising rounds like podcasts just were not a thing that was registering with most and most investors were like why would i listen to this right like you could go to serial and that's about it yeah it's, it's like, just you remember that like, eh. there was not a lot of belief in podcasts um, and also a lot of investors felt like they had been burned before by podcasts, I guess like in 2000, I want to say it was like six or seven or I, I actually forget now. Like apparently there was like this podcast craze in Silicon Valley. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I definitely John Doerr, I think was like leading the charge. Um, and then it never panned out. And I think like, I remember when we were pitching, people were like, yeah, I tried this podcast thing like a decade ago and like, it's not going to work. Thank you. Um, yeah. <laughs> appreciate the vote yeah. of confidence. And yeah. the internet definitely doesn't change frequently at all. So I appreciate yeah. that. That's a thing. Um, but yeah, there was definitely like not a ton of audio believers out there. Yeah. yeah. Well, you, you turned them into them. So that's fine. <laughs> so in that process, you're, you're loading the app up with content, try yep. to get everybody in the door, going out for series A with a different dream, with a different vision, or, or what did that look like going into the the second proper fundraise? Yeah, so, okay, so here's what happened. So we launched the app, and um, so we had a plan for the money that we had raised. We raised a million and a half pre-launch, and we had an idea of what that was gonna get us and the timeline that we had planned to uh, get it on, and um, we launched the app, and whereas right before we launched, we were like, we have no content. This thing's not going to work. The day after launch, we had so much content. We had no idea what to do with it. We have too like, much content. We were like, this is not going to work. <laughs> we were like, what the hell is like the launch of anchor 1.0, like not in a million years. Did we predict that it was going to be as explosive as it was? Like we had, we were so not prepared. Like we had no idea that that was going to happen. Um, and we found ourselves in a position where a like we were getting so much inbound support tickets and things like that we could not keep up with it and that's actually how we ended up hiring maya we like called maya up who if you remember she was mm -hmm. at betaworks and a friend of ours that we worked with at aviary we basically said we desperately need you like please come work yeah, with us right join now. us and she did um get the band back together yeah um and we also realized that the timeline that we had put in place was like totally wrong like we, we needed to accelerate everything. And so one of our investors, actually, I think it was actually John Borthwick said to us, I think you guys should raise more money like right now. Um, and I'm like, what are you talking? I was like, I just raised money. Yeah. And he's like, it's going to run out. And like, you're the hottest app in the app store right now. Like you need to take, like you need to seize this moment. And, um, and so we did that. So we went out and we were like, okay, we're raising a series A. And again, I still like don't really know anything about fundraising. I had just randomly done it a few months earlier. And, um, and this time we had a much different experience. Um, that raise was difficult. We had a ton of interest, like 
every investor was was calling us and saying, hey, we want to meet with you. You know, we had companies, we had potential acquirers hitting up being like, we want to meet with you. Um, we were getting a lot of conflicting advice about whether or not we should take any of these meetings. Like, you know, there was there was a school of thought with like, which is like focus on the product. Like right. you're, you're, it's burning down right now. Like yeah. you need to get that shit up and working. Yeah. And like, yeah. Or else the money's going to go yeah, nowhere. Exactly. And then there are other people like take advantage of this moment, go raise money, go explore selling the company, like literally do it all. And, um, and so that was really difficult to navigate. But w- what I was going to say was that process turned out to be much different because although we had so many meetings and like clear interest, um, it was way harder to get people to, pull the trigger and go and, and, and take a bet. And the reason is because there was no data, right? Like pre-launch you're raising money on a dream, right? On a vision. Um, post-launch now it's real, right? And it's like, there's actual stats. Yeah. And it's like, okay, like show us the data. And we're like, well, we just launched like last week. Yeah. And they're like, okay, then how do you expect me to invest in a series A? And I'm like, okay, good point. Great, great question. Yeah. So how would you that invest was, in a series? <laughs> so so that was really hard, and um, and um, we didn't end up raising a series A. We ended up raising like effectively another seed um, from a guy in a firm that I will say like really took a shot on us. And you know, again, in the absence of data, I think saw the potential and, and saw what we were working on and saw um, what you know what Nir and I really believed in. And, um, and that was Excel and Brian O'Malley, um, you know, took an early bet with very, very limited data and, uh, and we did end up raising more money. It took a, it took a few months, like very different than the process I had just been through where it's like one really intense trip to Silicon Valley. You get the term sheet versus like months and months of meetings and questioning whether or not it's going to happen. And like all the while, you know, the product also needs the attention. Yeah. It's on fire. So that, that was that round. Yeah, that's great. So then that money. Yeah. Was that the last fundraise you did? No. So so we used that money to accelerate our plans to launch on Android. And um, which is a beast. Yeah. Yeah. And we also leave it at that. Yeah. Yeah. And hire some more engineers and a designer and like start trying to mold this thing into a real company and a real operation and not just like near and me in a closet. So that 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 enabled us to like not have the the product on fire and ultimately launch um launch android the thing is what happens is once you get your product in market you very very quickly start seeing what's working and what's not working and where you need to invest more time um and we very quickly realized we needed to invest more time in um enabling people to be more creative we saw that people loved the ability to very easily create audio content and we saw that on the consumption side, we hadn't really nailed it yet because the content was so limited. It was just two minutes. It was just raw right out of the microphone. You couldn't edit it. You couldn't make it sound great. And so we we started building what eventually became like Anchor 2.0, which was still like a closed platform, still social, um, but way, way more creative tools. So you could add music, you could add background uh, music, you could add sound effects, you could take call-ins from your listeners. It was just like you could do a lot more with the audio. Um, and that, uh, that, yeah. When did we launch that? <laughs> that happened at some point, maybe yeah. like a year later or something like That's that. Fair. So, um, so, so, so that round enabled us to sort of like get there. Um, and people are starting to come into the platform. It's fun. Yep. It's fun to create. Yep. You're getting the data that you need We're to getting maybe the go data. out and do that next fundraise. Yes. And then you did that next fundraise. Yeah. So, so, so anchor 2.0 and like enabling people to, to be more creative really, really resonated. And yeah, to your point, like we started to see like some real awesome organic traction. We started to become like a real company. I think we had like 10 people or something like we had our own office. Like it was, it was becoming real. It felt like there could be a path to ultimately get to where we want to go. Um, and we, we, yeah, we, so we, we started a raise, um, for a proper series a, uh, which ended up being led by GV, MG Siegler. Um, you know, I, honestly, like one of the people that I think saw a ton of the potential from the, he, he was actually one of the first investors we ever pitched. And he was like, I love this. I believe in you guys, but like GV cannot write this small of a check. Um, 
So we stayed in touch with him. Yeah, totally. So we stayed in touch with him and he ended up leading the A right as we were seeing a ton of traction in Anchor 2.0. But what we saw with Anchor 2.0 was that while the content was getting better and the quality was getting, you know, was getting closer to what you would think of as like a podcast, this was still like this closed platform. It was still like this social enclosed like ecosystem. And people were saying to us, hey, we want to take this stuff off platform. We want to publish it to Apple Podcasts and Spotify and Google Podcasts and all these places where people are currently listening to podcasts. And and so we started to experiment with that. We started to um, basically what, what we did was we had this feature that let you like take your they were called um stations in anchor 2.0 we had you it was sort of like an audio story yeah we effectively let you like snapshot it and publish it like permanently in an rss feed that we would also distribute for you to all these other platforms and uh the moment we did that things just went crazy yeah floodgates open floodgates open and then when i say that thanks to mike and near and anchor and the entire team that the tartar project is possible (laughs) that floodgate opening is exactly what i mean the the ease of how you're able to just push this content out across and not worry about all the logistics around actually doing that and being able to focus on creating which is a pretty daunting beast in and of itself uh that's that's what i talk about with the ease so if you're thinking of starting a podcast (laughs) anchor is very much still available and it's only getting better yeah well, so it's it's very it's actually really different for, than what it was then. So like it's it's funny. We saw these floodgates open, but it wasn't even a podcasting app at that point. It was That's still right. like this social product with this bolted on like external export feature, you know what I mean? Well, we the moment we saw that happening, we were like, okay, we need to be a podcasting platform. <laughs> and then you, you pivoted we, right there. We just like so that was not in, even a pivot. You just yeah. you changed course. That I was in. Yeah. I mean, yeah, whatever. Pivot, change course, yeah. evolve. Yeah. As this I was, was saying, that was like, that's the same thing. Yeah. Oh. So like right as we close that round, we just like I, I, I remember us all saying like, OK, from this point forward, we're like we're like anchor as it exists is effectively in like sunset mode. And we are we are trans in behind the scenes. We're transforming it into a podcasting platform. And um on there, those were some of like the three or four most like intense months oh, of totally. like anyone's life on yeah, the team. Of course. Um, and we ended up like making the transition fully um, in, I think it was also February of 20. Jeez, I'm like so losing track of time. You're fine. Uh, it was about a year and a half ago. Yeah. It's about a year and a half ago. What was that? It was 2017? 20, yeah. Something like early that. Early 2018. Or 2018? 2018. Yeah. 2018. 2018. Yeah. yeah. Right and it was like the moment we launched that it was it was so obvious that there was like this product market fit there was this this new type of person that wanted to make a podcast like just for the first time like just coming into the space for the first time you know assessing the variety of options that exist out there for making a podcast like googling how do i make a podcast and like their head just exploding because there's all these tutorials and there are all these yeah there are these paid paid hosting platforms but they have to pay to host like a couple megabytes worth of audio. There's no way to record it on the phone. Like, you know, not mobile first at all. Yeah. And then there was anchor, which was like, Hey, you're mobile first. Like you own a smartphone, you want to talk and like, get it out there. That's what this app does. Like this app just lets you talk and publish it everywhere. People are listening to other people talking like that's it. It's that simple. Um, and, uh, and it worked and it's working. It's working really, really well. And it's been, um, it's been a wild, ride since. oh definitely because <laughs> and and when mike says it works it it definitely worked because we're sitting in the office of somebody <laughs> that feels that it definitely works and, and it's a big part of their strategy going forward which is podcasting yeah when did when did spotify first and i'm sure there's limits around what you can talk about <laughs> and everything but when did they first start saying hey what's up and how did that kind of go down in like the 90 second overview <laughs> yeah um so i think what i learned about acquisitions in the in the one startup that i that i have founded so far is that um they definitely don't happen overnight it's um like anything i think it's a relationship that sort of builds over time so um daniel eck was actually one of the earliest users of anchor 1.0 and so he reached out to me early on and said hey i'm a fan of your product like let's talk product and you know, we, we, we got talking to each other back then. And I, over the years got to know more and more people at Spotify and, um, and the way that, that the acquisition went down was basically 
you know, they, Daniel, Gustav Soderstrom, the chief R and D officer, some other folks on the team, um, back in, uh, the fall, basic fall of that 2018 reached out and sort of to your point, made it clear to us that podcasting was a big part of their strategy. And, um, we spent a lot of time talking to each other about what their vision for the future is, what, you know, what was really important to us, what our mission was. We actually realized that there was like this perfect alignment of missions, um, that wasn't super obvious, I think, to either of us until we spent a ton of time talking. Um, so hey, we see the world the same way. Yeah, exactly. Spotify's mission is to unlock the potential of human cre- creativity. They want a million artists to be able to make a living off their art and, a, and over a billion fans to be able to experience it and enjoy it. Anchor's mission is to democratize audio. We want as many people that want to do it to be able to create a podcast and get it heard and ideally monetize it and also make a living. Um such perfect harmony between so those odd. two. It wow. just, it just, it you just had to come together. It just honestly like made so much sense, um, especially when we were thinking about um, about about their strategy and how they wanted to approach it, and when they heard about what what we wanted to do. One of the one of the really cool things we realized was um, Anchor sort of Anchor Anchor is a creator first platform that represents many 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 creators. Right, we have a, in our minds a critical mass of creators. Spotify has a critical mass of consumers, right? People consuming audio content. Um, so many amazing things that we can do as one if we put those two things together. Um, you know, one of the questions, so I say that, and one of the questions that's first asked is, well, what about all the other podcasting platforms? Or what about Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and all these things? And the truth is, like, back to my point about being a creator's first company, uh, Anchor would not exist um, without creators. And at the end of the day, like, our job in this world is to provide as much value to creators as possible and to make their lives as pain-free as possible. And creators want to be on every platform. And so Definitely. that's what we enable creators to do. Because that's what our listeners do. are. Exactly. Yeah. And so that's what we enable creators to do. That's amazing. Two yeah. things before I let you go. I know you yeah. have to run. One, does anything jump out at you during the acquisition process that if you could look back and whisper in your ear while you were going through it, that it would have made things a little bit quicker or easier or that you just would have liked to know that you can share with the listeners that may or may not be going through that now or in the future. So I would say to anyone that's going through an acquisition, you know, obviously it's a really important moment in the company's life and maybe your own life personally. Um, it's, it's obviously high stakes and high stress. Sometimes um, I would just say to make sure to take a step back and recognize uh, that it's also a pretty cool thing that you're going through. And um, just like the rest of the journey that you've been on as a startup, like you have to appreciate it in the moment. You have to, you have to remember that you're in a really, really unique situation and um, yeah, just like don't take anything for granted. I think that's phenomenal advice. (laughs) Last thing. Okay. What's your life motto or mantra? Uh, Yeah. So, um, so I just try to be, you know, I was raised by my parents to like, just be kind to people like, and, um, I try to just like be nice to people and I just try to talk to people and, um, I try to, I try to bring that into everything I do is just like be kind to people. Um, yeah, I find that, um, in, in life and especially in business, sometimes people intentionally take the opposite approach. Um, and I feel like there's, there's also sometimes this stigma that you like have to almost like not be kind to people to like, to get ahead or to win or, you know, and, um, I, I have decidedly taken the opposite approach with just like, just to, just to be nice to be, be kind to people. Um, and, um, I think oftentimes you will find that, uh, people will be kind back to you. A novel thought. Yeah. Pretty, where, pretty, pretty simple, pretty simple yeah, thing. It's, it's pretty easy. Yeah. Where can people, or where do you want people to find you on the internet? Uh, me personally? Well, I would say if check out anchor. Else. Um, if you, especially if you want to start a podcast, if you don't want to start a podcast, you might want to consider starting a podcast because it's apparently this thing that everyone is doing and listening to. Uh, if you do want to do it, go to anchor.fm or just search for anchor, uh, in the app store or the Google play store. It is completely free. Um, if you want, want to learn more about me, I'm just at Mignano, which is my last name, M I G N A N O on Twitter on, I don't know, any other platform. platform, That's, that's where, that's where I'm at. Um, Yeah. Thank you for doing this. Thank you. This was fun. Totally. All right. See ya. That was great. 
I left that conversation with Mike feeling really energized. It was the first time that I actually got a lot of the details around even the founding of the company. And we, we've we spent time together over the past seven, eight years. I, I can't even put a number on it at this point, but it was really exciting to have him on because A, it's just so rare to actually achieve an exit for a company that you're building for years and years and years. And it kind of validates the fact that, hey, I, I'm not crazy. My hypothesis about what people might want and what we should put out into the world is right. That was exciting. And just how candid he was around the fundraising process and what a strange beast it can be, uh, along with the mindset that he had for building products and, and how he evolved his own thinking from when he was doing consulting work all the way up to becoming head of product at an early stage company, Aviary. So it was a really fun conversation. I hope you took some value out of it. I think that you did. Uh, I hope that you did, but thank you for listening regardless. And again, if you could just share the Tartar Project with your friends, five stars on iTunes, follow me on Spotify, go on heavy Spotify on this promo because gracious enough to host me. Officers are beautiful. Podcast studio was pretty dope. And Mike was awesome just for being Mike. So thank you again for listening and I'll catch you next Tuesday.